Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Scott Lease. I'm here with my good friend Richard Harris, and we are bringing you another episode of the Surf and Sales podcast. It is Monday, July 6th, right after the holiday. And we're excited to be joined today by Josh Roth, who is the Senior Business Development Manager at WalkMe, based in San Francisco, and a avid, rabid tweeter and lover of all things Oregon Ducks. Welcome to the show, Josh Roth. Boy, uh, Scott, that's the, that's the best introduction that I think anyone has ever given me. Thank you. I know, I know you as well as your parents at this point. A hundred percent true. Yeah. Wait, how do you, how do you know daughter, his parents? <laughs> Say that again, Richard. How do you know his parents? I don't, Richard. This was a joke because Josh and I <clears throat> started our uh, relationship, friendship, basically just running into each other on Twitter and learning about what each other likes and, and dislikes. And Josh tweets about, well, was tweeting about Oregon sports constantly, uh, which I, you know, which I love all things Pac-12, as you know, as a ASU alum and Richard is a U of A alum. So we've got 25% of the Pac-12 represented here today. There we go. Now we can just get the commissioner out and get a new commissioner and we're, <laughs> we're, we're really doing well there. <laughs> uh, so, so Josh, to, to just sort of get us started, give folks a little bit of context of, of what um, what WalkMe is, but also like, you know, you know, what are your sales cycles like, if you're allowed to talk about average deal size, just so they understand through the rest of this conversation, some context of where some of this is coming from. And then, you know, by all means, you're certainly welcome to tell us about any other large or smaller sales cycles you've done. So just so people get a sense of, of your background. Yeah, sure. So, um, so WalkMe is, uh, is the pioneering company for the digital adoption and um, kind of digital transformation space. So um, we will uh, do everything from like overlay on really any web-based application um, to help user adoption and uh, efficiency. Um, but on the other side of that, we also have a number of products that will help on the customer side. Um, so we, one of the main complaints that, that we get is that we hear from a lot of our clients that, um, they get so many support tickets that their CSMs and account managers just are basically clicking buttons all day, helping clients. Um, so we also help on that side from basically providing, so, um, so, so I'm going to push hard. What the, what the hell does any of that mean? Right. Like give us a use case. I don't like buzzwords. We don't like buzzwords here. Give me an example of a, of a platform, even your own, where it's like, okay, this is what it's like for the rep side. Here's what it's like for the, the, your client's client side. So they just get it, just so they get a stronger yeah, good question. So my favorite example that I like to use here is like take Salesforce, right? Um, if you're using Salesforce, you may know kind of the beginner level of how to get around Salesforce and kind of where to click. But WalkMe will overlay on Salesforce and literally you can say like, I want to do X. And then WalkMe will literally take you through and show you where to click and what information to, to drop in to show you how to not only be like a beginner and kind of be a novice in, in how to operate Salesforce into how to be an expert. So that's kind of on the overlay side. The customer side, um, I like to use the, the example of like, food delivery service, right? So think about like your experience on like Uber Eats or DoorDash, right? That's kind of my go-to example just because I think everyone at some point has gotten food delivery. 
Um, walk me can make the customer side significantly easier. So for example, um, your order is wrong, right? You order a cheeseburger, you say, Hey, like I want, you know, ketchup on the side or you order a cheeseburger, you get a hamburger, right? Walk me can literally help when you go through and say, Hey, like my order was incorrect. Walk me will literally troubleshoot for you. So instead of you just like getting a link that, you know, the website will then say like, Hey, was this helpful for you? And you click, no, this was not helpful for me. Walk me will actually take you through that entire process and then actually give you the help that the operating company may not. So it can literally take you all the way through. Like for example, um, I ordered some pizza three weeks ago and the order was not necessarily fully incorrect. Like I had ordered pepperoni pizza. Um, I got mushroom pizza, right? I still got the pizza. It was just wrong, but DoorDash gave me a full refund for that when really I was just looking for like a DoorDash credit just so I could keep the pizza, eat the pizza and get a new one. So walk me will actually take you all the way through the consumer journey for how to get help instead of just having a link sent to you and say, Hey, troubleshoot yourself. And you, you joined there. Um, literally right before COVID and all the quarantine stuff happened, right? Is that yeah, correct? So I had one week in the office. Wow. What, what has it been like joining a, a company and, and, and just your first indoctrination into the organization is like, bam, you know, everybody's at home and you've got to learn the industry, learn the product produce it's got it has to be have been challenging yeah it's been incredibly challenging i think that that you probably heard from from the explanation like i'm still learning the product i'm still learning how we help and all of the different ways we help because we have so many different use cases um so it was really challenging i think you know you spend i've been in in sales leadership now for five going on six years and your whole playbook of sales leadership is is almost thrown out the window you have to learn an entirely new way to, to lead a remote workforce, lead new ways in, into everything from like team building to onboarding. I mean, everything is different. Um, so even something so simple as like getting your team um, a computer, right? Um, that process is completely changed. Um, you know, no longer can you just come into the office and just get a computer and get everything you need. Now you actually have to get it delivered. You have to track the package package doesn't show up. <laughs> you got to like ensure that they can have the, the support they need to work on, on a personal computer until they get the new one. I mean, literally it's, it's an entirely different process that you're learning on the fly. Hmm. I want to, I want to go back in time though, not talk about walk me because my favorite part of your background is that all of it has to do in the beginning with sports, raising money for the Oregon athletic department, and then transitioning into ticket sales, moving across the country and working for the New York Mets. So my first question is, what is it like? <clears throat> you says you're a marketing communications manager, but like you're fundraising for the Oregon Ducks athletic department. How did that experience prepare you for a career and a life in sales? Is any of it applicable or were they doing everything wrong? So, yeah, it's a great question. I think for the most part, raising money for um, athletic departments and for universities um, 
it's really about five to 10 years behind the rest of, of sales. And what I mean by that is like, the population, yeah. sorry, what would you say, Scott? I, that, that's what I was wondering. So five yeah. to 10 years behind. Yeah. You know, it, it's, they give you a little sheet and it's, you know, introduction, then immediately it's build rapport, right? And here's the four questions that you have to know if you're going to build rapport with the person on the other end of the phone. And I remember reading that sheet and this was my first, this was the first sales um, job I ever had. And I'm thinking, boy, that sounds really hard and inauthentic, right? Like I'm supposed to ask four basically like baked questions to build fake rapport with someone to then just get to the point where I'm asking for money. Uh, do, you remember, do you remember one of those fake baked rapport questions? Oh, a- absolutely. Uh, give, us, hey, give, us, hey, give us one because there's probably a, a listener right now whose sales script involves one of these questions. Oh, absolutely. Hey, Scott, tell me about your experience at the University of Oregon. That's the, that's the, that sounds like a canned rapport building question. I agree. Yeah. That, that was, that was one of the big ones. The other one was, um, tell me more about your major. What was your biggest takeaway from your major? Uh, <laughs> which, okay. <laughs> these, these, sound, these sound like the pickup lines I would use when I was actually <laughs> right? in what, what's the are you in? What's your major? Where are you from? So, Oh, Funny that you ask. The next question was, tell me what activities you did outside of, of the classroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that, was, that was a third. So, but you got, but you. So let me ask you this. I want to jump into that. Did it work? I mean, they sound fake, but does so it work? I did this for about two to three weeks when I first started. And I think I was like last on their little, you know, leaderboard. Um, you know, I think that like, it would have been better if I just donated money out of pocket. I think they would have gotten more money than I actually got from donations. And there was a call that I had. So the, the system that we used, it just pre-dialed, right? You got off the phone and it was already dialing someone else. And I remember that it dialed a friend of mine. I literally, I saw, I saw his name. I was like, this, this is a buddy. Like there's no chance I'm talking to my buddy with these pre-cooked questions. Um, and, and I pray, I was like, please don't pick up, please don't pick up. Of course he picks up. And you know, I was like, Hey Sean, how's it going, man? And he was like, Josh, what weird number that you're calling me on? What, 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 what are we doing here? I was like, look, man, I'll just be totally honest. Like, here's what I'm doing in my spare time. Um, you know, it's, it's for donations to the athletics department. I know that you actually played on the football team. And like, we literally just had a conversation. And by no means did I expect that he was going to donate. But at the end of the conversation, it was like 10, 15 minute conversation. He was like, hey, did I catch, are you doing donations? Are you soliciting for donations for, um, for the athletic department? I said, well, I don't really like soliciting that, that. Like, I don't like that word. But to be honest, yeah, like that, that's what the job is. And, and, you know, here's what we're doing, right? Here's what I think the athletic department wants to do with the money. They're looking to develop a, a tutoring system for the athletes and literally the first he was like, Oh God, like I wish I had more of that when I was, you know, pl- playing football. Yes, man. I would, I would be happy to donate. Like he donated, you know, 20 bucks or something like that. But it was more about the fact that I, I was actually able to get something out of this. Um, and, and what I mean by that was not the fact that I got $20. Like that was not what I got out of it. What I got out of it was the understanding and learning that 
you can actually have a real conversation with someone and you can have a genuine connection with someone and still have an end result that benefits both people. Um, and I, and really kind of the third party here being Oregon. And I think that just having that conversation with him and just walking him through like what it was I was doing and why I was doing it and how, you know, making a connection to what he deemed was vital to that service. It, it, it benefited all parties. And so what you do after, so you figured this out, right? You cracked the code. What happened next? Yeah, I basically, I basically threw out that, you know, build rapport script that we had. And I just started trying to have real conversations with someone. So these were people that graduated, you know, anywhere from a year before me to like 50 years before me. And for each of those people, you know, you got like a, you know, a pre-cooked like, oh, here's, uh, you know, Richard and here's his major and here's any other information that we might have. So his donation history. And it was just, all right, let's just chat with him. Like I love Oregon duck sports. If you follow my Twitter in Oregon football and basketball seasons, about 90% of what I tweet anyway. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to talk to people about the ducks. Like, Hey, like, have you been to a football game? Have you been to a basketball game? Have you been to a women's basketball game? Like I just want to have like conversations with people that I find interesting. And if we talk about other stuff like fraternity and sorority life, great. I was in a fraternity. If we talk about, um, you know, student government, I was in that too. Like I just wanted to connect with people about Oregon because I love Oregon. And that was really what kind of got me around to just understanding that like you can have real genuine connections and conversations with people aside from these pre-cooked questions that sit three feet in front of you. Now, did, did, the, did the role at, at, at Oregon help you land the gig in New York with the, with the New York Mets selling for the Mets? Without a doubt, one of the people that actually interviewed me, who we, we called them TSRs, ticket sales representatives, that's what we called ourselves, that eventually switched to, to an ISR, inside sales representative. He did the exact same thing at uh, UMass for the Minutemen. So we connected on that almost immediately. Hmm. Well, I, got, I, got, I got a good question about the Mets, right? So needless to say, they're, they haven't been quite the, uh, the best team right? In a while. Uh, they try, right? And, and how do you say, like, this is a great example of it's maybe a product you love, but maybe the competition's way better, right? Uh, very traditional sort of sales challenge. Uh, you know, and people go to your LinkedIn profile, which I love, by the way, that you talk about the numbers of what you've committed to. You were successful there. How do you sell a product, I don't want to say inferior because it's major league baseball. Like, let's be honest. I'm never, I, I was never getting close. Um, you're on mute, bud. Inferior products. Okay. The Mets were an inferior product in that year. I'm trying to be nice to the guy, right? I'm trying <laughs> to see if maybe we can parlay this into like interviewing the VP of sales at the Mets, right? Scott, way to go, bud. Way to ruin it for us. So how, how do you do that though? Like that's, that's, that's not an easy task. And I don't care if it's professional baseball or, you know, a competitive service, you know, you know, anything that competes with Salesforce, right, might often be seen as the lesser product. How do you do that? Like, what, what, what did you figure out there? Yeah, so really similarly, I think where my, where I think a lot of the peers that, that I was working with felt was the lowest hanging fruit lied in just calling Mets fans, right? Hey, like, let's call a Mets fan and let's chat about kind of the lowest tier product that we had just to get him in the door because you love baseball. Um, and I think that for me, I looked at that and said, well, 
that's got to be not low hanging fruit. That's actually got to be the biggest challenge because the Mets are terrible. Like we were out of the playoff hunt in April in the, in my first two years there. And I looked at that and said, yeah, I mean, I can get these little onesie twosies just with big Mets fans. Like I looked at it not too dissimilar as like me at the Oregon ducks, right? Yeah. You can get me to an, to a football game in Oregon, even if the, or even if the ducks are bad, just to like get in, you know, kind of like have a experience, right. You take the family or whatever. Right. Exactly. But it, I felt like that was actually the hard thing to do where I felt we could really add value was really like, I didn't look at it as watching the Mets as the value. I looked at it as, well, if you come to a Mets game with a client or with a prospect or with an employee, you get three to four hours of your prospects undivided attention. And that is much more valuable than just catching a ball game on, you know, on a Friday with a buddy of yours. Um, And I looked at that as the value add. And even though the Nets and the Islanders and the Jets and the Giants and the Yankees, I can go on and on. I mean, the Mets were kind of like the, Scott, to your point, I mean, we were anything but the taste of the town my first two years there. And so I really looked at it as like, okay, let's understand what it is that the prospect is going through, right? You got to, you got to ride out to, to Queens, New York, right? That's going to be a 30 to 45 minute. This is my dog Marvel, by the way. Um, that's going to be a, a 30 to 45 minute subway ride out. Then it's a two to three hour baseball game, maybe more. And then you got to go back. So all in all, this is a four to five hour experience that you're going to have, right? If you can get four to five hours with your prospect the likelihood that whatever deal you're talking about is going to close is way higher than if you went to go grab like a dinner or a drink, right? Just because you have so much more time to build the relationship and talk about what it is you guys are trying to accomplish. And so I started calling B2B instead of B2C. And that's really where I started to have success was showing the value in what it was that the Mets actually could offer instead of just your hometown team, you know, and, and rooting for rooting for the blue and orange. And that's where I started to see success. That's where I started to really kind of surpass some of, of my peers. So, so talk about that though, right? So you call a business who, who statistically may be able to afford it, right? But maybe they give you the standard objection. Ah, you know, I wish I could, but they're not that good. You know, like, how do you play off those objections you get? Because you're going to get pricing objections, totally. competitive objection. You're going to get all the same stuff that we get in traditional B2B sales. How did you play into the emotion a little bit more to convince them to change their mind or to at least reconsider changing their mind? Yeah, you know, I think the first thing is is just recognizing that an objection is, is not necessarily something that needs to be overcome. It's actually just really good information that you can take in and say, okay, like here's what needs to be addressed immediately. Right. So one of the most common objections I got was like, Hey Josh, like I'm not spending $40,000 on Mets tickets. Like, like I have employees I want to hire. Like this is the last thing that, that I want. And the biggest thing that I would just say is, yeah, I completely understand that. Like, if you have no plan for what you're going to do with the Mets tickets, you shouldn't buy them. Like that's such a, a, a waste of your money. Like really, if you're going to work with us, the biggest thing that, that I think we would need to work together on is to build a plan for how you're going to do that. 
And as opposed to looking at this as a thirty to $40,000 expense that's just out the window just for people to catch a game, I would look to you to have an understanding as to what clients you want to bring out or what prospects you want to bring out to a game, right? What clients are at risk of churning? What, um, what prospects are you looking to break into that you just haven't had the opportunity to get in front of for two to three hours, right? And really have like a whiteboard session. This is an opportunity for you to accomplish both of those things with one product. Were you a Mets fan before you started this? No. No. It's, it's really interesting because this is, a, this is a way of taking what your prospect thinks you're selling and actually explaining to them you're selling something completely different. Yep. You're not selling them baseball game tickets. You're selling them a block of time with a new prospect, with the current client that becomes a retention play and all these different things that, that you're talking about. So I, I love that, <clears throat> that concept and that reframing of like, no, nah, you think I'm selling this, but I'm actually selling this other thing instead. And then all of a sudden, the value becomes a lot more apparent to, to them. That's really great. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's spot on. You know, I think that, that having that conversation typically, like whenever you call, you know, I would typically get one of two things that people would say, like, why are the Mets calling me? Or I don't want to buy tickets. And it's like, yeah, I don't either. But you know what I would love? I would love to have like 500 hours that I can spend dedicated to prospects and clients. That's what I would love. If, if, if that's what we were talking about, would that be like, what's your plan? Is that something that you would be interested in talking about? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, that's a little bit different, but like, tell me what you mean. Sure. Like, tell me, like, before I get into that, tell me a little bit more about what your like average sales price is. Like what's an average client worth to you? Okay. Well, an average client's worth 15,000. Great. If you bring two clients down and either they renew that you didn't expect them to renew or they strike a deal with you that, that you were working for it's already paid for are you are you surprised at this stage in your career how many sales reps and sales orgs sort of struggle to or fail to um talk about the roi to get into the actual dollars and cents of everything i mean you just really quickly there broke it down into an roi calculator right you're like it would cost this much a new client that you bring in would be worth this Therefore, it's worth it. I, I'm just curious in, for, for your take. Like, are you surprised how many salespeople don't do that? You know, it, it's, it's interesting. Yes and no. Yes, I think I am surprised because it's, it's a mission critical part of our job in sales, right? Is to understand how we can add value to our prospects and clients. So in that sense, I am surprised. In another sense, I'm not surprised because I think a number of leaders, whether they be sales leaders or just organizational leaders, don't have a really deep understanding of, of the consumer journey. Um, I actually talked with a, a friend the other day that, um, and she was explaining to me, like, I don't think that, that our CEO has a true understanding of what the consumer journey is and what value we provide, like, like we don't know the actual value we're providing to our prospects. And that's, to me, that's where I'm not surprised because I think that there's not enough of a focus on that at a high enough level to then have that kind of um, distill into the sales organization. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I've taken a couple of notes that I really like. Is uh, one is that you know it's not about the buyer journey; it's about the buyer's experience. Better it's word. Feel like going through that journey because you affect the experience level, not the journey itself. The journey is the journey, right? Uh, and then, of course, you know, Scott knows this about me. I'm never a fan of ROI. You know, I, I always define that as the economic impact. What's the economic impact to you? Because I think we built a callus to the ROI phrase, right? I, you know, we're all sales leaders. And as soon as some sales rep tries to pitch me ROI, like I just shut down, right? Um, and it's like, because nobody believes, you know, our friend Rob Jepson says, you know, no one believes the return. They only see the investment, right? So it's, it's all about, well, what's the economic impact of that, right? And that has a much more tangible feeling to it and an emotion impact like that feel, you feel that that the word itself is a is, is a feeling word is a kinesthetic word so i really like that in, in terms of where you're going and, and i like how you've been able to translate that i think even as you were describing what the walk walk me situation was like you're you're trying to affect the experience right so that it's a better experience not a better journey a better experience so um i really really like that so so you know you were, you were doing this with the Mets. Um, what happened next? So you, after, I mean, you started to become successful. Did you, did you leave because it, because I see, I know a lot of people in this, this professional ticket sales and they sort of can get to a certain level and that's kind of it, right? Unless you're there 30 years, right? Cause it's an old school boys club, right? So what was that epiphany for you to kind of go, all right, this is fun. It's sports. I love sports. You know, it's cool. I'm part of the cool kids but it's not enough. You know, it's so spot on, on so many different levels. The, the big epiphany I had, I would say there was two. One, you just talked about impact. I just felt like I wasn't having as much of an impact in my own professional career as I would like. You know, I was helping, I was helping a lot of organizations, you know, generate additional revenue through the Mets, but it, it felt very indirect. Um, and I wanted to, to have a much more direct impact. I wanted to be in a more um, innovative organization. Um, you know, it, to, to your point, Richard, like sports is antiquated. It, it's, it's definitely a boys club. And it, there's just, there's very little innovative thinking because it's the same people just going from team to team. Um, and that was the other epiphany I had was if I wanted to move up any further than I already had, I was going to need to move to like, Orlando, Pittsburgh, insert the city that you do not want to move to, right? I'm just thinking of the cities I thought of at the time. I'm not saying anything why, bad about Orlando or Pittsburgh. Why is, it, why is it that? Because meaning the, the best contenders, you don't get that job. Like you've got to go to the sort of the underperforming teams. So it's a little bit of that, but it's also that it's the same people just working in all of these different roles. So once you get to a certain level, there's only a certain amount of jobs left. Like there's only kind of one director of sales role open at, at the Mets. There's only one director of group sales open at the Mets. So if both those jobs are filled and you have nowhere else to go, if you want to move up, you got to go to a different team. And typically that means a different market because I mean, it's, not, I mean, it's exactly like Silicon Valley, right? Exactly. It's so not it's, that much different. It's just smaller, Richard. It's much smaller, right? Yep. You got 32 teams in baseball, 30, 31 in basketball, however many there are in football, right? You could change sports 
But there's still, to Josh's point, there's like what, you know, maybe 150 of those jobs in, in America in terms of leading pro- pro- yep. professional sports sales organizations. Not that many. There's a lot more than 150 VP of sales jobs out there in any market. Correct. And, yeah. and for me, it was just, I, A, I didn't want to wait. Um, you know, I felt like I had, you know, I had kind of mastered the role I was in and I didn't want to wait and B, I wanted to do something more innovative. You know, I didn't want for the mound to get moved, you know, a half inch back. I didn't want it to be a discussion for five years. Um, it just felt like there was so much red tape around sports, which I think there is. And I just wanted to be in a little bit of a, a faster paced environment than sports ticket sales. Yeah. I want to I want to talk about something that we don't talk about often enough and you just you just hit on it and you just you just said something about you you weren't patient enough or something like that and everybody talks about how important it is to be patient in sales and in your career I want to talk to you about all the benefits of being impatient and how that has helped you uh, in, in your sales career and in your life? Boy, that's a, that's, that's a really, really great, great question. I think patience is one of the things that I'm actually trying to learn. Um, but for me, the, the benefit of, of impatience in a sales role specifically is I think sometimes you just got to go do it right. Like you just got to say, I'm going to go do this and I'm going to figure it out on my own. I'm going to figure out what works for me. And I think sometimes we, we get like a true Gen Xer, <laughs> right? Um, like I think sometimes we get into this, this situation of like analysis by paralysis where like we think twice and, and, and act once, which, which is sometimes the, the right move. But I think other times in sales, like, do you really need to think twice about the call you're about to make? Like, do your research, do your due diligence, get, get to the person's LinkedIn, understand the account, but you don't need to reread the 10K or the 10Q or the person's LinkedIn five times in order to make the phone call, right? You can just pull up the LinkedIn as you're dialing the phone and as you're writing the email, like I think that there's this just do it like almost like Nike, right? Where being a little bit impatient, I think has its benefits to just getting the job done. Um, or, getting, or getting out of the job you're in now and into another job that you're qualified for and tired of waiting to get or pushing yourself even into a role that you're candidly not really ready for yet, but you're like, fuck it. I want to, you know, learn on the fly and like figure it out. Right. And, and that was actually the first VP role that I had was, you know, I never managed account executives before. I certainly had managed an entire sales organization before, but you know, here I am with a team of, of like, 20 to 25 people running everyone from interns through, you know, strat AEs. And it was the impatience that got me there. It was like, all right, now I'm here, right? I'm in the role that I wanted. Now I got to figure it out. But that was the exciting part too, right? I got to control that. I got to learn how much I sought out, how much learning I did outside of that job, how much reading I did outside of that job. And it was the impatience that really got me to that point. Once, and I was literally, I was probably 27 or 28, and I'd moved from Denver to Cleveland um, on purpose. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and no offense to, to, to all of our fans in Cleveland, or at least both of them. Um, you know, 
my boss once told me, he said, you're really impatient for success. And there's a value to that. And this is what I had to learn was that you can't manage people as an impatience for success, you know, pushing them. You can push them, but don't be impatient with them. Give them time to learn. But you can be impatient for success as a business unit. Right. And that was a really hard piece for me to grasp and understand. But that impatient for success thing has stuck with me for years. And now I pay that forward and, and tell reps about this all the time. It's okay to be impatient for success. It's okay to want more, but don't think you're going to push someone there just because of your impatience, right? Um, and so you, it, sometimes you have to leave to go find your next level, as Scott was saying. Yeah. So, so you, Josh, when did you get serious about building your, your brand beyond, well, I mean, I met you through Twitter first, but like, when did you get serious about building your brand on, on LinkedIn? I mean, you're appearing on all these you know, best of lists and stuff now. Um, congratulations, by the way, you've done, done a good job with that. But when did you get, get serious about this stuff? Uh, well, first of all, thank you very much. I mean, the two of you guys are, are on every single list I, I have my eyes on. So yeah, I'm not, I'm not like, you know, if it's a top 50 list, Richard's number 51 every freaking time. <laughs> right. And it annoys me. Scott knows this about me. He's like, Hey, here's another list you're not on. Um, <laughs> And I'm like, I'm going to write the list of all the lists I'm glad I'm not on just to like bash all these fantastic lists because it's like, really? Come on. Um, well, first of all, uh, Scott, very nice of you to, <laughs> to rub that right in his face. Um, <laughs> I hope that it's okay with him that I'm sharing this. Uh, yeah, do it, it anyway. <laughs> it was actually Kevin Dorsey. So I was in a job, uh, uh, Scott, to your point, that it just was not the right fit for me. Um, and I was impatiently trying to get out of it. And by the powers that be, I got a LinkedIn message from Kevin Dorsey that was like, Hey, I got a job open. Would you come interview for it? And in my due diligence on patient pop and, um, and Kevin, I was like, Holy, you know, Holy cow. This guy posts like, hello on his LinkedIn. He gets 400 likes on it. Um, and I recognize just through that, like looking at profiles. It's so annoying. Scott does the same thing. <laughs> like I'm left-handed. We're smarter salespeople. And Scott will get like 10,000 views in an hour. Right. You know, and, and I'm looking at Kevin, I'm thinking, boy, I wonder who else is doing this. And I saw, I saw guys like um, Paul Salamanca, Scott was, was in, in that list, uh, Dale Dupree. And I'm thinking like, this is the next wave of Richard's not on that list. There's another list. Richard's not on. <laughs> oh, geez. Oh God. I should have. <laughs> How long ago was this? So this would have been in early September of 2019. So you were talking like less than a year ago, less than a year ago. Yeah. So this has been like, you know, a sprint, if you will, for, for you. It's very, very recent. A little bit, but that's also how I kind of like, I, like my, my joke is, uh, is that I sprint marathons. Yeah. I get uh, my, my wife has told me for almost 30 years that I have two speeds, full speed ahead and dead stop. So I get it. So I I'm kind of built similarly. Um, and uh, you know, it, it didn't, the, the interview with Kevin didn't work out for like really good reasons. Like I moved to San Francisco, like it's a good thing it didn't, but 
Kevin and I became really close friends through that. And frankly, I got more out of not getting the job than if I did get the job because I learned how important it was to build your brand and to, to build through authenticity and, and helpfulness. So what, so what would you define as your brand? Like what is, what is your, your voice and how did you, how did you come to it? Was it, was it strategic at all? I'm only asking you this question because somebody recently asked me this and I'm like, I don't have strategy. I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like I just talk about whatever comes into my head, you know? So I'm curious if you were like, okay, I'm going to talk about this thing and this thing only, or I'm going to talk about all these things. Or if you're just like, no, nah, this is interesting. I'm going to let it rip. Definitely the more of the latter. Um, I don't like, there's no real strategy. The, the reason I started posting in the beginning, to be totally honest, was um, I was actually coming out of a meeting at an old company I was working at. And I was with our CEO and she had told me going in, even though I was the, the sales leader, she told me going in, I'm going to control the meeting. And I was like, okay, you know, whatever. Um, and then in the meeting, it was like, she was like force feeding our prospects, what we do. I mean, it was everything like, here's what we are and here's what we do. And here's our deck and all of this stuff. And our prospects are just sitting there like, and I can see their body language. Like they're looking at their watch. They're looking around every little sound that the air conditioning was making. They were looking at it. And I was just looking at this and thinking, boy, I made all of these same mistakes when I was 22 and I was starting my sales career and, or, or 20, I suppose. And I'm thinking, boy, like there's such an, a very basic misunderstanding as to what sales is. And that's really the first thing I wanted to correct. So I started writing down all of these lessons basically as like a frustration. Like I was just venting on a Google doc to myself. And I decided that I was going to take that Google doc and I was going to start turning these kind of vent sessions into a positive lesson and a takeaway that everybody else could have from my frustration. So I was basically just trying to turn a negative into a positive. And for me, it was helpful for me to basically vent my frustration and then take that frustration and say, okay, yes, I was frustrated with this, but now I'm going to make it a positive lesson. And I'm going to put that spin on it because everything that I do, I want it to be positive. Like I want to be a positive influence on everybody else. And that's really why I started posting was I wanted to help other people do that. And that's really how I get these posts is like, I'll put something down on paper and I'll say, great, here's what happened. Here's why I was frustrated. And here's how it was solved. And here's the positive solution. And now I'm just going to go post it. And hopefully other people can learn from it too. That's awesome. So now do you take a lot of conscious effort when meaning, and by that, do I mean, Hey, I know I need to post once or twice a week, or is it just sort of when you, when the whim comes to you, like, how do you strat, do you strategize around it at all, uh, at all for you? Um, to a degree. So I have this big Google, like running Google doc where, where I'll just put all of the posts. Sometimes like I'll think of a post and I'll think, um, Hey, you know what? Like, I'm not really going to post this. Like now's not the time I'm going to wait to another time. Other times, like, I'm just going to go ahead and post it. Like, I don't care the day. I don't care the time I was going to post it. I just kind of post when I feel, um, 
I shoot for like once, once per day. Cause I feel like it's a nice way for me to start the day is like interacting with other people, seeing what other people think, um, trying to understand like the lessons that other people may have learned about whatever I'm posting about. Um, but I don't view it as like a requirement for me. Like there are definitely days where I'm like, yeah, I don't feel like posting today. I'm not posting. Got it. Kind of take do, you, day you, do you balance LinkedIn and Twitter or is Twitter your main thing? Twitter. So LinkedIn is basically where I go to like post only professional things. Twitter is basically where I post where it's like just a stream of consciousness. It's just like, I'm upset for whatever reason. Scott probably has a really good idea of what I'm <laughs> thinking. Twitter, Twitter is the backstage pass to what's going on behind the LinkedIn concert performance. Okay. That's, that's a great analogy. It is the backstage pass. Yeah. Really well described. Spot on. Nothing to add. Yeah. Uh, so we, we sort of need to wrap it up, although it's gone by so quickly. Um, this has been a fun conversation. Uh, by the way, give, give a shout out to Shane Orlick. Um, I, I know Shane decently well. I turned him down for a job and I've regretted it ever since a long time ago. Um, so how are you doing, Shane? Um, what can we do to help you? How can we help you? How can we help walk me? You know, is there something we can do to, to support you business-wise, personally? Um, some cause you're behind, what can we do? Boy, that's a great question. I think, um, one of the things that we donate money to the Mets. <laughs> well, they need the money. So, um, so I think there's two things and, and actually that's a great call out that I do want to want to throw out there. So if people are hiring and I know that that's a big if right now, but if people are hiring, check out hiring people from, from sports sales. Um, there's a lot more in common with sports and, and SaaS specifically than I think some people think. Um, like, you know, in SaaS, you can generally sell to almost everyone. I know that we can at WalkMe and sports is the same thing. Um, and I think like if anyone has any questions on the similarities there, like please come in and ask me. But when you're hiring, I would just highly recommend that you check out some, some folks from sports sales. Like, those people have some of the best work ethics of anyone that I've ever worked with in my, in my career. What do you um, think? I'm going to go a step further. What about fundraising in general, right? Like if they, if they did go work at the university and they were calling the alumni group, do you feel like that's a good training ground for just straight up cold calling, right? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think, I think both of those are excellent kind of first steps into someone's sales career. And I think, a lot of folks in, in, well, a lot of folks is the wrong word. Some organizations I think like to have this like six month or 12 month um, kind of guideline on you need six to 12 month sales experience before you become an SDR. Um, personally for an entry level sales role, like I disagree with that. I think that I've never heard. Yeah. Like I think, go ahead, Richard. So, so, and, and I know we need to wrap it up, but I want to give somebody tangible. Hey, it's great to go find these people, right? What should they be looking for in these people? What kinds of things should I be asking, you know, most likely the kid who's been doing the alumni calls or done the professional sports calls? Well, the biggest thing I like to ask is, is on the work ethic. Like, tell me about what that job was like. I mean, I think a lot of people like to think about sports ticket sales, like they have kind of a rough picture, but I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand, like, sports salespeople are working weekends. They're working the games. Like they're getting in at normal time, like eight, eight thirty, nine o'clock, but they're staying through like 10, 10 30 on game days. If there's a game on the weekends, they're in on the weekends. Like that work ethic, they're putting in 60 hours a week during their season. Um, 
ask them about their work ethic, ask them about who they're selling to as well. Cause you will get people with experience selling everywhere from SMB all the way through like strap. So ask deeper questions beyond just your like baked interview questions that you like to ask day to day. Well, appreciate you spending some time with us, Josh. And, uh, it's always, always fun getting to chat with you, talk sales, talk sports and all, and all things going on in the world. If you want to uh, follow Josh and get connected with him, check out his LinkedIn profile. You can find him on Twitter. He's pretty hilarious, pretty outspoken. And uh, I, I enjoy it a great deal. And uh, before we get out of here today, I just wanted to say thanks to our sponsor here at uh, Surf and Sales Podcast for the month of July, lead411.com. Uh, it's got millions of leads produced, thousands of happy customers, become instantly more effective with trigger-based sales intelligence platform, lead411.com. Thanks, everybody, for uh, spending some time with us today. Josh, talk soon, man. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me.